Support for this show is brought to you by our friends at Bloomerang. Bloomerang offers donor management, online fundraising, and volunteer management software that helps small to medium nonprofits like First Tee of Greater Akron. After just one year with Boomerang, First Tee of Greater Akron doubled their unique donors, improved donor stewardship, and raised more funds. Keep listening to hear their experience or visit bloomerang.com backslash what the fundraising. We're using this technology to get a better, more real-time measure of the donor experience. Welcome back to What The Fundraising. I'm your host, Mallory Erickson, and this podcast is for impact leaders and change makers who are looking to fundamentally change the way they lead and fundraise. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Neon One, where we are doing an incredible series on donor engagement and particularly email engagement. Today, I'm interviewing Jill King, Steve Agawis, and Brian Kissel at Moore Neuro Fundraising Lab. Steve and his team of neuroscientists and psychologists focus on the scientific study of human biometric responses to fundraising stimuli in order to understand, measure, and increase the effectiveness of each stimuli within a targeted donor base. Okay, what does this mean? Biometric research is the study of subconscious processes related to attention, cognition, emotion, and physiological arousal. So they use technology to monitor potential donor reactions to different types of content and copy to see how your nonprofit story or appeal is actually showing up in the donor's body in terms of their attention, emotion, and engagement. And in this episode, Steve, Brian, and Joe reveal some of the secrets behind enhancing donor engagement through the balance of data-driven insights and innovative thinking. We'll show you how to balance creativity and science to craft powerful fundraising campaigns that connect with donors on a deeper level, and why context and testing play such an important role. One of the things I love about this team is that they are clear about the ways that science can strengthen your fundraising, and they're honest about the limitations too. But everyone, whether you have the fancy support of Neuro Fundraising Lab or you're doing A-B testing in your email software, there is a lot that you can learn from this episode. So let's dive in to meet Steve, Jill, and Brian. Welcome, everyone. I am so excited to be here with this incredible team, Steve Agawis, Brian Kissel, Jill King. I'm going to let them tell you all about what they do, but I am just so excited to have this conversation with all of you today. Steve, do you want to kick us off and just sort of give us the the rundown of Neuro Fundraising Lab, and then we can dive into our exciting topic for today? Sure. Thank you, Mallory. Yeah, we're very excited to be here as well. So my name is Steve Agawis. I am the director of the More Neuro Fundraising Lab. I am a cognitive psychologist by trade, but our team is a group of psychologists of different specializations and different interests who are all here to try to do the best we can to help our clients improve their fundraising using neuromarketing techniques to help measure the donor experience. Amazing. And Jill, do you want to share a little bit about your experience? And then Brian, I'll kick it to you just so everyone knows who is on this call today. Yeah, of course. I am Jill King. I have a PhD in neuroscience and my specialization is in visual attention and learning. Uh, So that's very useful when it comes to evaluating ad content for our clients. Amazing. And Brian? 
Yeah, and my PhD is in experimental social psychology. Originally, I studied things like attitude formation, but also I did a lot with like data science and quantitative types of methods as well. You know, one of the things that I was so interested to talk to all of you about is I think there's growing interest in our sector in behavioral science in general and and psychology and not just in our sector. I think across multiple sectors across the world with sort of the growing body of pop science that continues to come out that gets everyone engaged and thinking more about how their brain works and how other brains work. But something that has been really striking for me over the last few months in particular that I've been thinking a lot about is you know, I'm very interested in taking learnings from outside of our sector and seeing how we can apply it inside of our sector. And I also recognize that there are some limitations to that. And I think particularly around what you all do, there are some practices in our sector of applying consumer behavioral science to fundraising behavioral science that has some challenges, that poses some challenges and some inaccuracies if nonprofits just sort of take that data and let that drive their fundraising without a deeper look and their own testing. So can we just sort of start the conversation there? And can you just tell me sort of how you all think about the importance of nonprofit specific research around donor behavior and how that relates to the work that you do? I think we like to say in the lab that fundraising is consumer psychology with a twist. And that twist being that depending on how you look at it, and I think Brian has some thoughts on this as well, but like it's believed to be an altruistic behavior. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. And I think there's some debate as to how that all works, but that makes it different in a lot of ways in terms of how the response is gathered, the techniques that you might use to garnish interest and get people to kind of start slipping down that slope toward a response. I think you have that piece of it and you also have not that it can affect other consumer products as well, but the 24-hour news cycle plays such a role <laughs> in the certain issues that people are so very interested in. And that is going to play a really big role with nonprofit work, especially, right? Something happens that's a tragedy. It affects this area. That's going to affect all these organizations that are trying to do things like that. So it's just awareness-wise and then in terms of just the tangibility of what these organizations do and all that is so variable depending on day, week, year, like all of that just plays such a role in performance. And it's so challenging to benchmark measures like what we're trying to do, like emotion and memory and a lot of those other types of things. So I'll kick it off to Brian and Jill. That's my intro. You guys go for it. Yeah, I think from generally our perspective, like if you're in fundraising, then your business is people. You're trying to connect with people and get them to give funds to these various organizations who are worthy of receiving that. And people are really their brains, their psychology. So I think as a starting point, those basic psychological principles that are present in consumer psychology and other forms of psychology are a great place to start. But I think the messy part of science is the real life aspect. Like people are always more complicated than one scientific psychological principle. And really being able to explore those nuances in a meaningful way is how you get that really useful data. 
So using those consumer psychology or basic psychology principles as a starting point, and then thinking about some of those factors that Steve was just addressing, and sort of how do I add that into different research designs into our ad materials, and then testing whether or not that really works to kind of build on what is existing with those extra aspects that are involved in fundraising to fully flesh out this fundraising psychology that's really still very much in development. And Brian, before you expand on that, which I'm, I'm very interested, can we just break down really quickly the types of studies that you all do? So for folks who are like not totally sure what this looks like in an applied way, they have an idea of the types of tests you're doing? Yeah, for sure. I think that's when I hear that, that question's a little bit difficult because I think one thing that's sort of unique about having this group of PhD level researchers doing this ad content evaluation is that it can be very bespoke to an extent. If there's something you want to know and there isn't sort of a paradigm that we've worked with before to do that, we can develop something new to answer whatever your question is. So we definitely do have some go-tos that we do a lot for our clients, but also if they have questions and that's maybe not the best methodology, like no worries, we can develop something for you since we do all have this varied background experience. So I know that isn't super helpful to answering your question, but just sort of a general disclaimer of, yeah, we've got some examples, but I think sort of we take a broader scientific approach to really pin down what's best for a particular question. So it's not that you have to shoehorn your questions into an existing methodology. It's let's develop something that works best for you. Now that I've said my piece, I'll let you give the concrete examples, guys. (laughs) I thought that was a very good disclaimer to start off with because it's just one of those things where our service depends on the question. Like the technology that we use, the galvanic skin response, eye tracking, this amazing immersion technology from immersion neuroscience, like all these different pieces of technology are to address specific questions that people have in mind. It's not as though we go, oh, we're just going to do this study and incorporate all this technology into every question. It just depends on what people care about. But generally speaking, we're using this technology to get a better, more real-time measure of the donor experience. So it's not just focus group surveys, those types of things. They're all great measures and you can do those very well and get some excellent data from it. But these biometrics help us find out how are people experiencing creative TV commercials, direct mail, websites, whatever it might be in the moment from a physiological perspective. How is their body? How are they reacting to this material and using this pieces of information, using the qualitative and the quantitative, this mixed methods approach to give us a very holistic picture to try to understand both pieces and also to help explain the biometric data, which can sometimes be messy. That's super helpful. I just think for folks who don't have a sense of what this research is like, just to understand that this is research that's being done to measure the biological and psychological responses of donors as they observe fundraising content, be that a TV advertisement, an ad, direct mail, and it's actually sensing and measuring in the moment how they are responding to that content. And so that's why it gives us this really interesting look and why it's so important to do it around fundraising content specifically, even though this technology exists for consumer and is used widely in consumer responses to advertisements and things like that, why it's so useful to have it specifically tailored to the donor experience because those vary. Okay, Brian, I interrupted you. So I want to go back to that. But thank you for just letting us zoom out for a second. Something I was going to add 
is that as psychologists, a lot of our training is in designing measures and tests to be able to get at these like social or, or these cognitive or psychological processes that are like very difficult to measure. And within like the nonprofit world or consumer science, like these are usually those are the things that we are really interested in measuring. And the point I was going to make is doing that is hard. Like I had an advisor once who would say this all the time. He'd say creating a bad measure is like incredibly easy. Creating a good one is like incredibly difficult. And it's like a simple thing, but like, I think it's so important to remember that. Like, like when I decided to go into grad school, it was around like 2011. I was really interested in some of this like consumer psychology type uh, topics. And something that I ended up finding was that like, it's the same time as like the replication crisis is beginning and we start to realize, wow, this stuff that we talk about this in this way, that it's like so simple. It's so clear. You just have to do this and this and this, like things are really much more complicated than that. And I think it's really easy to be like, oh, well, I can just like run a study or I could just ask this question or come up with a measure to do this. But that expertise that like we've been developing for the past like 15 years for each of us is like very helpful in, again, figuring out whatever the client's goals are, what things they are attempting to accomplish, which usually is how can we raise more money? We are attempting to use those skills to help them be successful and evaluate those things. Yeah. And I think one thing, Brian, you just said also ties really well back into why it's useful to use biometrics, because not only is it difficult to design those measures and those take time, but I also think on the other side of it, for someone having a donor experience, like you're not always fully aware of your own experiences and how best to measure them. And your self-perception can be hard to vocalize or even notice, as much less if you're being asked about it later. So being able to actually have some things that people don't have to specifically voice and that we're able to track in the moment really helps interpret those things and get at some of those nuances in a way that things like survey or focus groups, when you're reflecting on things, it can be more challenging just because it is such a difficult process on sort of both sides, being the one to do the research or being the one participating in research. Like it's challenging for participants to really be aware of everything that's going on and how it's influencing them. Yeah, you know, something that you all have brought up a few times in our previous conversations and already on this call is how much context plays into how donors respond and how quickly the context changes in the types of inputs that impact donor behavior. And so when I think about the difference between doing a focus group and then a month later having that email go out that was based on the focus group response, it seems like all of those contextual pieces have likely shifted in a lot of ways. So can you talk to us a little bit more about that, about what you mean by the impact of context, how that comes into play and how you all think about it? Like I mentioned, everything can affect it in some way. And the further away from testing the launch is, it makes it difficult to, it's just funny. Whenever we have clients who try to work with us in different ways, the biggest question is, can you predict how I'm going to do? Can you tell me how I'm going to do in market? Is this going to succeed in market? Are we going to do good? And that's the part that's the hardest thing for us, because even if we see that people are emotionally engaged, they're responding positively about the content and they're verbally saying everything is good, all that happens, right? 
you're also competing with all these other nonprofits. And so not only are you now have the 24 hour news cycle going, you don't know what other campaigns are going with organizations that are like yours and whether people understand how your mission is different than everyone else's mission and why your value is different than everyone else's value. So something we try to do as much as we can, it's just difficult, is we try to do the creative evaluation, but we also try to do as much as we can these kind of questions about comparing them to other organizations or competitors or things like that. Like we've done some of that before too. And it paints a different picture, especially in the time of year can affect that. You know, December, it's a great month for most nonprofits, but it's also the most competitive month. And it can be difficult to predict performance in situations like that. So we like to say that we're predictive by accident. It's a joke, but it's also not a joke to some degree because we're always trying to get closer and closer to being able to predict how people are going to do. But really, emotion, attention, these things that we're measuring, it's part of it. It's not all of it. And we're just one piece of the puzzle. So we can't really figure out the rest of it. That's the piece that we hope that the qualitative and the quantitative can help address as much as possible. But it's just tough. It's, it's an ever-changing world. And you just don't know what the launch conditions are going to be. I also think we're maybe using context very broadly. Like you can control the content, but not the context. And context is everything that isn't the content. So the size of your organization, how the longevity of the organization, how large the organization is, as well as things like what topics are big in the news right now? What are your personal financial values and circumstances? Do you have the funds to give? Like, I think there's a lot to it some of which is easy to measure and put into potentially developing something predictive, like size of the organization, that's measurable. But things like, how does a person feel in this moment about giving money to this particular set of values is something that's much more complex. So I think when we say context, we really mean like everything else, which I think is what Steve's saying. Like we don't really have control over all of that. Like we can do what we can do and we can measure some of the other stuff and take it into consideration as well. I like to say that science is messy and this is what I mean. Like it's great theoretically. And then when you actually put it in the real world, put it into practice, there's just so much else that comes into play that you're trying to keep in mind and consider and utilize that information as much as possible. And then also recognizing that some things are just going to be beyond the scope of what we can research, of what we can measure, of what we can really do. And I would say the opposite is also true. Being in a lab setting or on a Zoom session, doing a study, whatever the session, that's going to affect the whole thing because you have someone who is attentive, engaged, and at least looking at your content. Like we're giving you best case scenario. So it's not perfect. It's not the real world. It's not how people are going to engage with this like that. It's a lab setting. And so we can only give you what we can give you, which is best case scenario. We have someone who's attentive, interested, and at least inspired to participate in some way. And they're hopefully trying to be the best participant respondent that they possibly can be, but it's not perfect. And so on our side of it, our measures can only go so far. So something that Steve often says is that we're not a crystal ball. And I, I think that it's important to clarify that doesn't mean that what we're doing doesn't work. And I think that point that I made earlier where I was saying, what are you trying to accomplish within a company? I think a lot of people will say, well, raise more donations. And that's all we're attempting to predict. But I think it's just really important to remember, like when you have a particular piece of content, an advertisement, a story that you're attempting to tell, you made choices when you were designing that. You had particular theories 
maybe it's, I want to make this spot very emotional. I want to make this be really engaging. I want people to connect with this story, to understand the goals of the organization. And these are all things that we believe are connected to success and information that you would need to know if you're going to predict that it's going to be successful. But you can't ignore all of those other constructs and concepts and important things that we can study. And thus, I think it's one of the big things that it's important to do is to really understand, like, what are you attempting to do within your ads? And how can we design good tests of whether you are accomplishing those things? And then we can go and see, okay, does that influence whether it's going to be successful or not? I'm really glad that you walked us through that because I think, yes, your work any of this work, any fundraising advice that anybody gets anywhere is going to be impacted by a million other factors when they take that advice and put that advice into practice. All we can do is make the most educated and aligned content possible so that in the context that it is delivered, it does as well as possible. And so I think what I was thinking about in terms of the contextual piece a little bit related to what you all do is just that something we also have talked about a few times is this concept of this replication crisis that a lot of behavioral science, even in consumer behavioral science, has had studies once or maybe a few times that then cannot demonstrate the same lookability over and over again. And I think about this in terms of fundraising, because I feel like there are a lot of nonprofits that copy a strategy that another nonprofit does. And they think that they are copying it point for point around the structure of the campaign or the structure of the email. But there are all these contextual impacts, like the work of the organization is different, the brand recognition is different, their donor base is different. And so it doesn't perform the same way. And they don't understand why, or even an organization did something one year that worked really well, they try to rinse and repeat that the next year, it doesn't do the same way. And they aren't really taking into account this contextual piece. First T of Greater Akron needed to switch from an outdated donor management system to something more user-friendly. With Bloomerang, they found that and more. Executive Director Josh Smith commented, We love Bloomerang. It saved time. It's helped us raise more funds. By investing in a donor database that they actually loved using, First T of Greater Akron was able to raise more funds and continue creating lasting change in their community. To listen to the full interview with First T of Greater Akron, visit bloomerang.com backslash what the fundraising or click the link in the show notes. I mean, you have a success with a certain technique, a certain style a certain tone and your assumption is, oh, I did this once. Maybe we A-B tested it several times in market. We did the best we could to beat it and nothing's beating it. And so we're going to just keep going that direction. I, I think too, it's it's also one of those things, and Brian talked about this recently with our creative team, is just testing is difficult and interpreting testing can also be difficult. Like you look at your test results, especially you look at your KPI and you think you know what happened. Even if you're running really tight tests, right? This one thing, I only change this one thing and nothing beat this, right? You can do some great A-B testing and learn some things. But sometimes your own bias, your own just beliefs 
make you blind to what else could be that explanation. And because you're not trying different things or you're not trying to go outside the box and really truly put those theories to the test, you're missing out on a bigger interpretation that could maybe give you some more flexibility in how you create. And still that finding that you had probably still solid, but there's a bigger framework behind what actually happened that you missed. I think when something works in fundraising, what happens for the next five years? Everyone tries to do the same thing. And then your audience, everyone's targeting those same people. Everyone's buying those lists. Everyone's going after those same individuals. And guess what's happening? They're getting sick of that message. They're getting sick of that tone. They're getting exposed to it so much that there's a fatigue factor that we don't think about. And the only way to know when you need to change, when a change is needed to, to refresh, is to constantly and consistently listen to your audience. It can't just be about, we have to just get this thing out and get donations. We've got to get this thing out. We've got to keep churning. It's all about production in a lot of respects. And yeah, it's all about the bottom line. It's all about the KPI sheet. And the KPI sheet's important. But if you're not listening to your audience and you're not getting good measurements from that audience, you're going to miss an opportunity to evolve before everyone else can. Okay. You're bringing up something that we haven't talked about previously. So you can tell me if you don't want to talk about it, but you just said something that is really fascinating to me. And gosh, if my father gets to say, I told you so after this episode, I'm going to cringe a little bit. But yesterday, so I have a signature program. It's called the Power Partners Formula. And it's really focused on one-on-one -on -one funder engagement with individuals, corporate partners, and foundations. And the language in the outreach emails is much more empathy driven than a lot of the outreach we typically see from nonprofits. We really put the outreach through the lens of the person that you're talking to. We talk very specifically about their interest in this type of work, what we've seen them do in the past, what assets the organization has that we think are particularly interested to that type of funder. So it's really focused on alignment. And he said to me yesterday, I was with him and he said to me, he said, but what if every fundraiser starts using power partners? then is it going to be less effective overall? And I was like, no way, dad. Like, I was like, because empathy is empathy. And doesn't everybody just want to feel seen and spoken to like from their core identity? And so I guess one of my questions is, are there psychological principles around what create belonging and connection and identity that stay universal, that can't be overused because they tap into sort of the deepest parts of ourselves, but then maybe more of the tactics, like the fundraising tactics, like a 4X match campaign, something like that, that those are the things we have to be more careful about mass production of. Yeah, I guess, in my opinion, it's tricky because I think Everyone is trying to create authentic emotional connections with people, but I think there's kind of two things to consider with that. One is just sort of emotional burnout. I think at some point, if you're constantly being served these ads, and I think we really saw this in the pandemic where like at some point there's just too much and you can't feel that deeply for everyone because you just kind of get at capacity at some point. 
And then I think another aspect of trying to do that with ads, when you're being asked for something, you're being asked to give money. I think you have to be careful with how you're trying to build those authentic connections because it can come off feeling very inauthentic and cheap to people sometimes. One, if it's not done just right, which is the creative's problem, not mine. And then also if it does get too repetitive, it's like, oh, cool, another one of this, more sad dogs kind of thing where people are like, you're going to play at my emotions to get my money just like everyone else does. So I think it's sort of, again, more nuance and context, the particular circumstances. I think as a general response, like, of course, there are enduring human emotions that everyone will experience for the rest of their lives. But when you're trying to generate that in a 120 second ad, doing that in a way that is new and authentic and fresh and that feels very genuine to people, I think does get tricky when everyone else is kind of trying to generate that in the same way with similar approaches. Yeah, we live in this like really odd moment within the world where we're like, I think almost every phone call I ever get is like somebody trying to scam me or like, it's just this, people are bombarded with all of these attempts. And I think people are thus rightfully very skeptical, like something we see all the time is just, I think, a very constant level of skepticism when they're looking at these differing organizations. So like one example, there's an organization that originally did this like very novel, interesting AdWords. It's very sad, this like strong, powerful music, and it was like very successful. And then you see all these other organizations attempting to use that same thing. Okay, so the only way that you can be successful is by making the ad like really sad, make them really feel it. And my theory is that it's not that you can't be inspired to want to donate or connect to an organization because it's making you feel sad, but it's that people feel like you're trying to trick them. I think some of those things that you were talking about, an important thing that I would want to keep that in mind, that anything that you do that plants like a red flag within someone, because it feels like, oh, I'm just like copying this thing that other people do. Like if you're using this empathetic language, but it just feels fake, it feels like, no, they don't really care. They're saying this thing then I think that's where you're going to start having some of those problems. That's kind of how I think about it. Yeah. But Mallory, I liked how you kind of separated it between like tactics and then this other genuine emotional appeal side of it. Like, I think that side of it, personally, I feel like that piece of the empathy, the trying to treat the donor a one-to-one relationship, trying to build that relationship and an understanding of what the organization does and how you can help solve this bigger issue, impact, all those types of things. That to me feels more universal concept, like a more universal concept that I think most donors are looking for. Like at least from what we hear from people in lots of our studies. Like I, I think those are definitely things that people would get behind. But like to what Brian and Jill both said, it's a really fine line when it comes down to the final creative execution. No one wants to make a mediocre product, right? No creative is like, I want this to just do okay. And in that regard, like everyone tries to use best practices and even the best techniques, the most empathetic, best language, like all those types of things that you were talking about, those are all wonderful. But the final execution to your audience can be perceived as something totally different. And that's the problem. We can do the best job that we can to make the best creative that we can. But ultimately, 
It's the audience's perception that matters. And that's the problem. But I think you're right. I think the tactics part of it is the part that sometimes turns people off the most. But what people are talking about in terms of creating this genuine, authentic experience feels like our audience appreciates that, at least from what we've seen. Well, and I feel like sometimes even the execution of those tactics changes the whole feel of it. Because I've seen some spots where the, oh, the times for match is like really nicely presented. It's subtle. It fits in with the vibe of everything. And then I've seen some spots where it feels like you just stuck a sticker on it and it feels like a pop-up ad and like that makes it feel spammier to people. So I think a lot of it is in that sort of overall feel that you're creating for people. Does it sort of give them a red flag and now they're suspicious and they're being skeptical or does it further draw them in and really let the emotion and the overall message lead? Yeah. And I think so much of that comes back to the genuineness and the authenticity behind it. You know, and I don't have the science for this, but like, I know when people are in feelings of scarcity, the content and the copy that they're writing is not as good. And whether it changes just a few words about how they talk about something, you can just hear a little bit more desperation that doesn't feel as connected. And in Power Partners, the whole first phase of Power Partners is all executive coaching tools, because it's really about how do you tap into that emotion in yourself before then you go and try to write that email to somebody else, because just copying a template is actually not going to create connection. And so I really appreciate how you guys sort of frame this up. So I was thinking about this thing that happened recently where I sent out an email after there was a national crisis. And I reflected on it a little bit at the beginning and how I could imagine that it was making fundraisers just feeling so much overwhelm and how they continue with their work in the midst of feeling all of this overwhelm. You know, because people don't read things fully and they scan emails and people make snap judgment interpretations. I sent out this email and I probably had like 30 people write me back, like, thank you so much for this email. I feel so seen. Like, I so appreciate this. And I had two people write me back nasty. One of which was like, how dare you? Who do you think you are comparing that thing to fundraising? And I was like, wait, who is comparing that thing to fundraising? Like, but I was like, okay, you read like one sentence and had this whole thing. And you know, I've done this enough. And I've had experiences like this enough where I don't let those moments drive how I talk to my audience or how I communicate. But I know so many fundraisers, they get that one mean email back from a donor, or they get this one negative response, and it drives so much of their future behavior. And you all are doing testing where you're trying to find the most optimized content. But my guess is that does not mean that 100% of people like it. So talk to me about that. I was going to say that's a great example of why I think the sort of testing that we attempt to do is so important because that particular experience, like that's one data point. That's one time that you're each of those people is a different data point. And it's like, if you did that a hundred times, is that going to be the same reaction? Is that the same proportion that you're going to see? And thus something you can do is you can attempt to design a study to actually evaluate those sorts of things. Because yeah, I definitely agree. I think there's this temptation because people want to be flexible. They want to do the best thing they can. So they might see something like that. It's this bad piece of feedback. 
say, okay, I'm going to change. I'm going to move really quickly. And that might not be a great idea either, because you might be abandoning something that, like in your example, that touched like 30 people that was special to them. And maybe there's something that you could do that would help decrease the amount of critical comments that you would get. But it's like, you don't want to move away from that and just throw out all of those positive responses. And thus. I mean, different donors are looking for different things too. Like there are lots of people out there who treat donation as an investment. Those people probably are going to be less moved by the emotional appeal and more moved by the information, the history, and the what are you doing with my money stuff. But that doesn't mean that there aren't those people out there that aren't responsive to an emotional appeal and are going to give in that moment. Like that's also the hard part about, I talk about this a lot with when it comes to looking at your market data, because you might have a winner. At maybe it's a spot, maybe it's a direct mail piece, whatever it might be. You might have a winner, but that doesn't mean that the people who are in the second highest category or the lowest category, how do you know you would have gotten them to donate with that piece? Maybe it was the piece that they received that got them to donate and that winner wouldn't get those people to donate. And that's the hard part. You don't know that from any type of data other than something like this where you can go and explore now what your audience is actually, what their preferences are, what they like, what they don't like, what they're looking for, and hear it from them. Otherwise, we're just guessing at what really is a winner. And again, I get it. Like the one that had the lowest cost per call, cost per lead, whatever your metric is. Yeah, it does come down to we have to raise money efficiently. We have to be good stewards for these amazing nonprofits and charitable organizations. But also we have to think critically about what those data mean. And it's very difficult to do by just looking at market data. Yeah, I think my very scientist answer to how do you know what feedback you should respond to is statistics. Like we are, you do have to have a large enough sample that you know whether or not one person's negative comment is meaningful or did that one piece of content not appeal to that particular person? Like people have multi-channel advertising approaches for a reason because not every piece of content is going to resonate with every person in your audience. So if you're showing it to enough people in your audience, if you're trying to listen to everyone, if you have that sample of 32 people and 30 of them loved it and two of them didn't, then like you're not excited that you upset two people, but it's probably not enough evidence that you need to change your entire approach. So as difficult as it is for humans to remain objective when they get negative feedback, because no one wants to think they did anything wrong or that they hurt anyone's feelings. Like everyone who's working in fundraising has dedicated their lives to helping organizations that need it, to doing good in the world. And you don't want to hurt your donors in the process accidentally. But if one person was having a bad day and didn't read your email thoroughly and needed to, you know, express some frustration, that's could even be unrelated to your particular messaging, then you don't want to take that and run with it if that's not really representative of the whole audience. So it's a very boring answer to a very difficult and easily relatable question, but just being more objective and less reactive and trying to evaluate, okay, how much of this is really real? How much of this is me needing to reassess and how much of this is one person or a handful of people who maybe didn't read the email all the way or who were having a bad day or who just don't vibe with this particular way to present the content. I really appreciate that. I'm curious, how do you all think about benchmarks? 
I know we started this whole conversation saying it is really important that nonprofits are doing their own research and their own testing and not just going off of consumer testing. And I think one of the ways that that plays in is like benchmarks. It's super easy to look up benchmark data like email open rates, click rates, different engagement metrics, how Facebook ads do with consumer data in particular. And so I think sometimes they don't always know how to benchmark for themselves. And I tend to lean towards them creating their own benchmarks. But how do you all think about that? The way that I tend to describe it to people when it comes to benchmarking is like, if you're looking for what's a good amount of time that someone should spend reading this paragraph, or what's a good amount of emotion I should have in the spot, what's a good score on one of our scales? I would say that's the difficult part because it's all so dependent on the creative and the style. And there's all kinds of things that can get into that makes that messy. Now that said, what you can do and the way that we prefer to benchmark is to have So let's say that you have your new piece of creative that we have in front of us. Give us a great control that we're trying to beat that you know is a strong control for you that's been a good control in the past or that is a current good control. And then also maybe give us something that's not so good. And that way we can kind of tell you where this new piece, if it's one new thing that you're trying to do or a couple, where it kind of falls. And the problem with that type of benchmarking is it's expensive to test more things at once. It can be challenging from a feasibility perspective. But because of all these external variables that can affect performance, it's so difficult to say, this is a good emotion score and this one's going to do this well in market because there's so many other factors. We had an organization that we worked with, I think this was a couple years ago, great national organization, very good brand awareness, scored very well on some of our emotional measures and just did not do well in market. But then you look at kind of more practical factors. We did a survey a few months later and we actually had them as part of like a ranking system amongst other organizations. And they ended up the lowest in terms of prioritization at that time. So it's like, yeah, they did great with emotion. And yeah, they did great with some of our other measures and the piece of content was excellent. But using that to kind of say, this one's going to do great in market is just so difficult. But if we had that versus another piece of content that they had already created and did it that way and did benchmarking where we did it against something that we know is doing well, it's easier to benchmark that way. And it's, again, it's also more accurate to benchmark that way. But it's a different type of data. And I'm not saying that down the road, we won't have the ability to do better benchmarking, but at least that's where I'm at with it and how generally we prefer to do it. But I recognize that that's not perfect for every client. And sometimes we have to make adjustments. Yeah, the only thing I would add to that is, Mallory, when you said people need to do their own benchmarking, I was like, yeah, But I realized you might mean fundraising generally should have its own benchmarks. And I think of it more how Steve does, like each organization needs to have its own benchmarks. Like to me, knowing how your audience scores things based off, you know, the size of your organization, how well you are handling things, where you're following on that ranking of priorities. Like I think all of those are kind of those bits of context that we've been talking about that even when your content is performing excellently, if you're just not a priority in the national zeitgeist at the moment, like you need to know that. So doing those benchmarks for your own organization and comparing content within your organization, again, like maybe that's not super helpful because it doesn't generate a lot of generally applicable knowledge for nonprofits who maybe don't have a big budget to do their own benchmarking. But I think that's kind of the most realistically applicable for organizations who do have the opportunity to do that. 
And I was also going to say, to be fair, I don't think it's a bad thing to benchmark against other organizations necessarily, especially those in your sector of whatever big issue you're trying to solve. But using that as the only thing that matters is a struggle. Like I, I agree with Joe completely, like benchmarking within your own organization so you can see how you're creative and how all the different things that you're doing, how is it moving the needle across time? I think that's a great way to benchmark. And if it's one of those things where you want to see, like maybe there's a national competitor that's just like where you want your organization to be closer to and you want to benchmark against them, I think that's fine. But I think you just have to know what it means and have realistic expectations about how far you're going to be able to move the needle and in how much time. And comparing yourself to a large national organization that's spending lots of money on advertising and marketing where your budget might be smaller and expecting to get those results in a small amount of time would not be a great expectation. Everyone wants that, right? And, and, I, and I get that. Well, I actually meant, Jill, what you meant. I meant within the organization, because I think there are actually too many contextual factors to really compare yourself to another organization because like Neon One just came out with this really awesome email report. It's fascinating, right, to look at the difference in open rates and click rates, actually, particularly for small organizations over large organizations. Small organizations perform much better. They perform much better in terms of the value per email contact as well as something like $6.32 value per email contact for small organizations and like 88 cents for large organizations, like wildly different. But those large organizations are doing so many different things when it comes to lead acquisition. They have so many different purposes for their list. They're emailing their list so much more frequently, like it's you're comparing apples to oranges. So I think like there's nothing more helpful than looking at your own benchmarks. And I think something you guys have been saying is like identify your goals because sometimes I'll have organizations that are like so happy with their open and click rates. They're like, I have a 62% open rate and 7% click rate and I'm doing so well, but like they're not raising any money with their list. And it's like, so what's the goal? Like what's the goal of your email list if it is just nurture and you want to raise all your money offline a different way, like, okay, but like, how are we defining good? And what is the purpose of this in the first place? And then driving towards those actual goals, we can do some testing to see, okay, yeah, don't throw out the baby with the bathwater. And like, there's a lot of things that you're doing that are really great. But how do we integrate things that are also going to drive towards these goals that you have that you're not utilizing your list for. Yeah, absolutely. I think that theme of what are you trying to achieve is generally something we encourage people to think about. I think it goes back to what Brian was saying earlier of you had a goal in mind when you were designing a piece of creative. And I think there are those goals at each stage, but I think people think of creative and science as like completely different worlds mm. when I really don't think they're that different. Like you have ideas that you're testing when you make a piece of creative and we have to be creative in coming up with tests. Like those aspects, it's two sides of the same coin, not entirely separate coins. And I think keeping that sort of more scientific approach in mind as you're going through these processes would be very beneficial because you're not really that far off from it to begin with. Yeah. Okay. I could talk to you guys forever, but I have to be mindful of your time. Thank you so much for this conversation today, for all of your wisdom and sharing your work with us and all these insights. I'm, I'm so grateful. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for the opportunity. This was 
so fun, honestly. Yes, thank you. I'll make sure there are links below so folks can find you, learn more about what it would look like to work with you as well. Thank you so much for joining me. Thanks, Mallory. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Okay, I hope you found this episode as interesting as I did. Here are some of the top things that I'm thinking about right now. It is really important that we are staying up to date as nonprofit leaders on current events and news cycles that may impact our fundraising campaigns. Context is really important. It doesn't mean that you shouldn't send that email you were planning on, but it might need to sound a little different. Number two, test and evaluate your fundraising content regularly to ensure it's resonating with donors and meeting your goals. Number three, Consider comparing your organization's fundraising efforts to those of competitors, quote unquote, to gain a better understanding of how you can stand out and differentiate your mission and values. But be careful not to over rely on comparison data when it comes to creating benchmarks for your organization. Neon One's email report that I mentioned in the episode has incredible insights around email engagement for nonprofits in particular, and it's a valuable first step to look at those benchmarks. And then you need to get ready to create your own organizational benchmarks. Number four, use a mix of qualitative and quantitative research methods to gain a comprehensive understanding of your donor's experience. Number five, prioritize developing specific and tangible calls to action in your fundraising content to encourage donors to take action and support your cause. This also really helps with your testing around their level of engagement. If you have the capacity and means, you might also consider incorporating biometric technology into your fundraising research to gain a more holistic understanding of donor behavior and responses, particularly if you're about to execute a really sensitive campaign. Okay, for additional takeaways and tips inside this episode, head on over to MalloryErickson.com backslash podcast to grab the full show notes and resources now. You'll also find more information there about Steve and Jill and Brian and the Neuro Fundraising Lab and our amazing sponsors, Neon One. Thank you for spending this time with us today. If you enjoyed this episode, we would love it if you would give it a rating and review and share it with a friend. I am so grateful for all of my listeners and the good hard work you're doing to make our world a better place. And if you miss me between episodes, stop by and say hello on Instagram under whatthefundraising underscore. Have a great day and I'll see you next week. Hey you, I hope you're loving all the free value you're getting right now from our guest. And speaking of free value, I've raised millions in the nonprofit space without sacrificing my integrity or my alignment. And I'm sharing how I did it in my free webinar, how to harness the power of prioritization to raise more without burning out. Go to MalloryErickson.com backslash workshop to register for the free training right now. I cannot wait to see you there.